Wait a minute, I forgot my introduction. Hey guys, this is part two of our two-part 400 episode where we are going to be talking with guest Terrence Johnson about the decade and reviewing some categories in terms of genre, but uh, give it a listen. Yeah, enjoy what we have to say about the decade. We do have a brief bit of, with uh, Mark Johnson before he had to take off, but uh, yeah, this is uh, the second part of our very lengthy recording session during our 400th episode. Great, so we just finished our top tens, and now we're going to run into a larger discussion, kind of like deeper thoughts um, and just overall exploratory thoughts about the decade in film of the 2010s. Uh, Mark, I'd love to hear kind of just like what your overall takeaway was for the decade and whether you felt as though there was a theme to it or you just saw like an explosion of young talent or whatever else. I mean, I'd love to kind of just hear how you how you think about the 2010s. Yeah, it's it's I think with any decade you get an explosion of talent, it seems like, right? So um, there was no shortage of that, both with filmmakers or performers. Um, you know, with filmmakers, you had really the Nolan come into form, Chazelle, um, Barry Jenkins. We, you know, there's a whole bunch of filmmakers we could say that really uh, kind of came out and crushed it. There were others, you know, that were continuing to do uh, what they've always done. Like Scorsese was making tons of great movies this decade as well. Um, I think it's when we look back at this decade, I think the two things that kind of stand out for me are just a lot of the technology, technological advancements, which I think mm-hmm. you can start with how Avatar ended the last decade and how that carried into films uh, like Hugo and um, in, uh, Inception and Life of uh, Pi. Life of Pi, right? Yeah. yeah. And, uh, gravity, etc. So uh, I think you take that and then you stretch it out even further to, to see what they did with the comic book genre. I think that is right. Uh, like it or, or, or hate it. That is probably the biggest thing that separates this decade from past is, uh, that additional genre. And I know we had comic book mo- book movies and, you know, back in the 60s, 70s, but I think what the Marvel universe did. And I think, uh, I can't remember. I think it was Terrence mentioned as, you know, all the work that they did to bring these movies then together to singular films like Avengers and, and Endgame and infinity war. Uh, I think that's probably where this decade kind of separates itself from others. It's, it's is in that genre. Um, Performance-wise, we had lots of uh, you know all-time great performances from you know Daniel Day-Lewis with Lincoln and and Phantom Thread. Even mm-hmm. um, there's you know even even others that like I'll just I'll name a couple that I really like that probably others won't maybe name is um, Sienna Miller and American woman, Tony Collette and hereditary uh, James McAvoy and split DiCaprio and Revenant. Uh, there were just a lot of really, really great performances that even films or, or even performances like that maybe don't get as maybe talked about as some of the Oscar winners. Right. Um, you had, you know, the stars that kind of were consistently delivering outstanding performances. I think Christian Bale is probably in my opinion, maybe the MVP of the decade with performances, Wow, um, the, I never thought about that category, but now you're making yeah. me think. Yeah, I, I, I mean, Bale just every turn. I think you, you mentioned it earlier with his his nomination for the Big Short. I think why he gets that nomination is just he 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 everything he does he just transforms himself into. So I just I think he had probably the best decade, our best 
best uh, portfolio for the decade. But you have Kate Blanchett, Leonardo DiCaprio, Ryan Gosling, McConaughey, the, the McConaughey, I think we called it when it was happening, Joaquin Phoenix, Amy Adams. There's just a lot of really, you know, Viola Davis, for God's sakes. A lot of really great actors, I think, that were just consistently putting out films. As far as the new ones that blow us away, I think we started off the show maybe toward the beginning with Daniel Kaluuya. Like, what a what an amazing talent we get to watch there and, and see how he unfolds along with Oscar Isaac and Adam Driver and Florence Pugh and Brie Larson, uh, Chalamet, Jennifer Lawrence. Like there's just a lot of really great talent that uh, came out this decade. And I think that's true with, with probably all decades. Um, but that's, those are the names I think that kind of stand out to me as far as the actors, the directors, the themes. Um, but yeah, looking back at it, I think it's an interesting decade. I think it's going to need some space for me before I start, you know, comparing the films that were high on my list the top 100 for the decade before I start comparing those to my all time 100 list. Um, I'm not ready to put La La Land or Inception into that list yet. I think the, I need a little more time before I have that, those movies squeezing out other movies that are in the back end of that all time conversation. So nothing to me that like, you know, in the, in the aughts, I think you had films like um, there will be blood and no country for old men. And I'm a sucker for the Lord of the Rings trilogy. You had films like that that instantly made my top 100 list coming out of the decade. This 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 list is a little bit lacking in that immediate for me at least immediate films that I would put there. Um, I know for others it's not because Terrence mentioned his number one film of the decade was also his number one film of all time. So that's you know to each their own in that regard. But for me, I think this decade probably needs a little time and, and distance before I can start comparing it to the all time. Like and, that's Mark. My, and that's my yeah. thoughts. Well, thank you very much, Mark, for uh, for not only yeah. you know going over your entire top ten yeah. list and um, you know sharing your thoughts on a variety of things here about the decade. It, it's been great to have you on. We look forward to having you back eventually. I know we've been you know playing yeah. tag with each we've other. We've been trying to get you on, <laughs> but uh, I was holding out. I was holding out for the big four hundred. Okay. So, yeah. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Nice. <laughs> Thanks. Well, wow, it was all, it was all up here. I, <laughs> I am honored though to be part of the it. So thank play. you. Thank you for letting me be a, a guest on that on that big episode. Happy to do for it, sure. always. And, yeah, and congratulations to you guys. Oh, thanks. Oh, yeah, no, very much appreciate it. But, yeah, I don't want to take too much of your time here, so I, I just uh, just the last thing we can do before you kind of take off. Where, where can people find more of your work online? Um, I am a writer for Award Circuit, um, which is awardcircuit.com, and you can follow me on Twitter at MarkLikesMovies. All right. Great. Well, Mark, thanks again very much for joining Thank us you, for this episode. Very much. Yeah. Thank you, you, guys. Have, yeah, I look forward to talking to you soon. You too. Tell, tell Terrence I said goodbye. Yeah, we'll do. <laughs> All right. See you guys. See ya. Thanks. Bye. Awesome. Well, thanks, Mark Johnson, for uh, all your thoughts. And uh, we're going to jump into just the three of us here, Terrence, Aaron, and I. Um, we're going to start off with a game, but then we're also going to talk about our thoughts um, uh, on the decade. And uh, we'll we'll have some topics to cover, but also it'll be, um, you know, I'd be curious to hear what you guys have to introduce into the, into the fray as well. But um, let's do it. What, what time did you say it was for? Oh, I think it's time for a, a decade-long game here. <laughs> Terrence, I don't know if you know this, but uh, Aaron was uh, vying against uh, Justin Hurwitz for La La Land's uh, composer. Mm. It was between <laughs> me and him <laughs> to get that going. I mean, it's, it's just mm. that Giselle had worked with Hurwitz before, but they heard Aaron's work and was like... You know, this guy's got something. That was the, that was the sole reason. Yeah. All right. I have a game for you guys. It is All a right. tagline game. 
um, decade edition. I have tag. I have ten taglines here, all from different years of the decade, not in order because I don't want to make it too easy. Uh, I'm going to read what ta- tag what said tagline is, and you have to guess what film I'm speaking of. If you need help, I will narrow it down by the year and go from there if more help is needed. If you feel you know the answer, just yell out your name. Sound good? Yeah. All right. Here's the first one. Earn, spend, party. Abe. Abe? The Big Short? Incorrect. (laughs) You're on the right track. This is a 2013 film. Is that... Office Christmas Party? I don't know why that popped into my mind. <laughs> it could be. No, it is not Office Christmas Party. Okay. <laughs> the, the Big Short was very much on the right track as far as what kind of things those people are in the business of. Yeah. Wolf of Wall Street? The Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, of course. Oh, wow. Right. Yeah. Good call. I've tried to make these notable films, too. Not something you forgot <laughs> okay. seconds after you walked out of the theater like Office Christmas Party. <laughs> Here's the next one. Your mind is the scene of the crime. Abe. Terrence. Damn. Abe. Inception. It is Inception. That's one of the greatest taglines. I, I really like that one a lot. It's just like, that's so intriguing to me. Here's the next one. Okay. All you need is one killer track. Oof. It is one killer track. I thought this would be one of the Abe? obvious ones. Abe. And Max Fury Road. Incorrect. All right. All you need is one kill. This is a 2017 film. 2017. In terms begin of the ag- type of it, what? Hmm? Begin again? It's not begin again. Ooh. It is an action movie. It's oh. an action movie. Oh. In terms of what Abe was going after, it's a very specific kind of action that takes place in much of this movie. Oh, weird. Hmm. Um. This is a director who's made three films this decade? Oh, uh, Abe? Yeah. Guardians of the Galaxy? Incorrect. This is really hard. Um, Yeah, the killer track, probably. The term killer throws me off. Like, I was like, is it a horror movie? It is an action movie. It is a car chase movie. Car chase movie. Oh, Abe. Is this Fast Five? No. Fast six. It's not a fast movie. <laughs> I think Terrence and I are all out of guesses. It's Baby Driver. The answer is Baby, Baby Driver. Driver. Oh, One killer yeah. track. He listens yeah, to music. Right. <laughs> There's music in all the movies that Terrence and I named. He literally needs a kid. That's literally yeah. a line in the movie. <laughs> yeah. Here's next. Was one. he slow? Break the story. Break the silence. Abe. Aaron. Abe. Spotlight. It is Spotlight. Spotlight. They knew, Robbie! Uh, That's my Mark uh, Ruffalo. Here's the next one. Every hero has a dark side. Yeah, I feel like I know this. Uh, Every hero has a dark side. This is a 2019 film. Ooh. Ooh, Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now it's like, hmm, what did I see last year? It's like Brightburn? You're in the right genre. I mean, I figured with Hero in the, the title. <laughs> um, I'm going to say 
Every, every hero has a dark side? Mm-hmm. Shazam. Jesus. Nope. Mm, I don't know. This is uh, a bad movie. Yeah, Terrence said Brightburn. Brightburn's good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a bad uh, superhero movie? Yes. Batman and vs. Superman, Donna Justice? 2019 movie. I do not know. Um, it's from another popular Marvel franchise. Is it a movie that X-Men has Dark, not... Dark Phoenix? Dark Phoenix is. A uh, I was like, wait, is this is this a movie that keeps on getting delayed? Is it New Mutants? <laughs> it's not a 2019 movie. Yeah, um, it has been released. Here's the next one. Okay. The road to greatness can take you to the edge. Uh, Abe. Abe. Free Solo? Incorrect. Mm. The Road to Greatness can take you to the edge. Yeah, that seems like too dramatic of a tagline for Free Solo. This was in none of our top 10s, though I'd imagine it's in some of our top 100s or 50s. The Road to Greatness will lead you to the edge. Will take you to the edge. It was the breakout film of one of the newer directors of this decade. It won a few Oscars. It's a 2014. A few Oscars? Terrence? Terrence? Whiplash? Whiplash is the correct answer. Uh, that is nowhere near my top 100. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. You don't like the... When he crashes the car, that's when you lose everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, he, should, he should have been like seriously injured. <laughs> Here's He was. Here's the next thing. <laughs> Left with nothing. Capable of anything. Left with Nothing capable of anything. Hmm. This is a 2018 film. I'm left with nothing. I'm capable of anything. This is the follow-up to a director who won Best Director. Whoa. Uh, Abe? Abe? The Revenant? Incorrect. What's the tagline again? Left with nothing capable of anything. Left with nothing capable of anything. Best director. It's the the director won Best Director. This is his follow-up film. Hmm. I don't know. It's Widows. The Widows is the correct answer. Widows. He didn't win Best Director. Oh, wait. No, he won Best Picture. He didn't win Best Director. See, look at you. Coron won. I forget. We all, we all got a point there. We all got a point there. Turns out we got a point. Yeah. Here's the next one. The search for our beginning could lead to our end. Uh, Abe. Abe. Interstellar. Incorrect. But uh, very on the right track. No, they had something similar, but less less depressing. Abe. Oh no, go ahead, Terrence. I the move. You might as well go ahead and take this because I. Uh, Alien Covenant. You're one off. Ah! Terrence. Prometheus. Prometheus is the correct answer. <laughs> All right. Chosen chosen because of how much Terrence hates Prometheus. <laughs> yes. Here's the next one. Okay. Why are they here? Abe. Abe. Um <laughs> Made in Manhattan popped in my mind for whatever reason, but it's it's a rival. <laughs> it, it it is a rival. <laughs> I don't know why Made in Manhattan came in. Thanks a lot, J-Lo. No one, no one knows why. <laughs> Here's the last one. Okay. What are you really worth? Mm. 
There's a lot. There's a 2011 film. Are you really... Terrence? Yeah. Moneyball? It is Moneyball. Ah. Oh, that was a shot in the dark. I knew. I thought that was going to be so wrong. Let me add this yeah, up man. here. This looks like a close game. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was close, but Terrence, you are the winner of this week. Yes! Weekend. Good job, wow. Terrence. Thanks. Good going. Awesome. Let's jump into our discussion of the, the decade. Um, I'd love to open up with some opening thoughts, uh, Terrence, from you about just your overall feel of the decade. You know, Was there some themes that you were thinking about that kind of traversed through the years or, you know, as a whole, when you look back on it, and I know that we're not that far removed from it, but uh, we are removed from more years than others. Yeah. But, you know, um, what was the thing that emerged for you or was it like the overall feeling for you? That's really interesting. For me, it, with the advent of streaming, mm-hmm. I really saw an explosion in foreign cinema mm. making an impact here. Um, and it's not that, you know, Foreign films haven't made an impact. You know, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was 20 years ago and it made, you know, like $128 million. Like people have gone, yeah, yeah, people have gone to see it, see movies, but not in the way I think of like, like a separation building that Oscar campaign out of like word of mouth and getting into screenplay or, you know, capping off the decade with Parasite or even movies like, um, Oh my gosh, I literally just was looking I at I mean, one of your favorites too, Burning, right? Where it yeah. became, you know, everyone talked about it and people were like, this is one of the best movies ever or of that year. And it became so, it was accessibility of it too. Yeah. And I think we really started, you know, to see that because, you know, Netflix was buying up like 10 of them, mm-hmm. right? It would be like, here we're streaming, um, you know, Happy as Lazaro is a movie that I'm thinking about. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know if I would have sought that out had it not been on Netflix. And, like, it has one of the best edits, like, from one one of the best cuts in a movie that I've ever seen. Um, you know, we saw a lot of, you know, underrepresented voices really pushing through, particularly through the last half of the decade. Um and I, I think that had a lot to do with the Academy changing, you know, um, like for every green book, best picture winner, you know, <laughs> you get like her in screenplay, like who would have thought right. a movie about like a guy falling in love with a computer would make it in. So, yeah, it was just really just like this sort of upheaval with streaming with, you know, foreign cinema with these underrepresented voices really getting a shot that sort of, you know, changed the industry a lot. And one of the main, and the MCU, you know, mm-hmm. in particular, uh, right. in particular, if we're talking about franchises. Um, well, on that side of, yeah, I mean, there's two sides of this, right? You're looking at like the biggest films possible versus the smallest ones possible. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of advancement in both areas as far as what's, what became a huge trend that was not only celebrated as far as box office is concerned, but like considered as far as serious filmmaking. I mean, I mean, give or take the opinions on these films that people have there, there are a lot, there's, there's a lot to look at as far as how people are using the MCU films, let alone other superhero films as kind of a means to represent what they stand for, what have you, which I do think is important. It might not be the best mm-hmm. way to rely on something, but at the same time, there are positive values that come out of these things that ideally are what, yeah. you know, carry forward. And speaking to on the other side, yes, with streaming as well as just like the distributors that have 
emerged during this decade more prominently like a24 and aperna like they they've you know they've also given like the chance for underrepresented voices or newer filmmakers or a diverse set of crew people or what have you to you know to find a way to get that stuff out there in a time when films of these budgets films of these topics aren't being pushed into kind of the mainstream or at least wide release yeah, yeah. so and, and Aaron, from you, I'm hearing that, you know, uh, you're also mentioning a lot of voices. Do you also have other thoughts about like, the decade in general um, from your perspective? I mean, it, there's always going to be advances. And when it comes to like technology or what kinds of social values we're accepting more in media in the world of media, it's just kind of like the nature of things as things progress in the you know in the years that we have and like what's really important to focus on as far as what kinds of things we can't watch or shouldn't be or taboo or whatnot versus what's becoming suddenly more open or what have you so it's it's less like surprising that we've seen these kinds of advancements and more just like a neat inevitability to see payoff where it's like yeah we can see you know a movie like moonlight win best picture or any number of things that involve the kinds of stuff that you wouldn't be seeing, you know, 30, 40 years ago. It just makes sense to me now that it's happening more prominently. At the same time, it is exciting to see that because, yes, the films become more interesting by having more kinds of things out there. And right. so I look I look at this decade and I see a lot of, you know, the films on my list and the various lists that I've read and just the films that I've seen in general. And you think, well, yeah, there, movies like this are, regardless of the storytelling involved, because there's only so many ways you can expand on certain kinds of plots, you get a lot of variety in how they're being presented to you. Um, mm -hmm. And, I mean, that's, you know, you can look at various decades and see where ambition and innovation were more key to the success of certain films. And I look at the 2010s as one where it's like, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that I just haven't seen presented in this kind of way before that I really enjoy, and that speaks mm -hmm. to all genres. I mean, that speaks to animation as well. I mean, there's so many things going on in terms of not only the advancement of the technology, but just the kinds of things that are that people are trying for, like what kinds of things you can right. do when you have no yeah. real limits beyond imagination. And I, I think that's. Yeah. I mean, I look at my. I, I took out. We'll get to this, I guess. When we get well, to the yeah, we'll, we'll I, get to some I, categories. But it's like I, I did. T I took out like the like I took out all the animated films from my top 100 list, and I did the same for horror and foreign films, just to see like which ones like are, are in there, so I can have a separate list of like what's there. And there's there's just a lot. It, there's not a lot of like samesies types of stuff going on in these, and I right. think that's really important to the to the to the you know the state of cinema. Like there's there's right. there's so much that's being offered and there's so much accessibility to it, which does speak to streaming once again, as well as yeah. the kinds of, you know, the formats you can see these things in, and like where they're coming from, how they're being presented to you and even like the filmmaking aesthetics and whatnot. So. Yeah. Well, thanks for that. And Terrence, just to finish up on your thoughts, I mean, you had mentioned streaming. Did you have additional thoughts on the on the decade before we uh, jump into some of the categories here? Uh, well, yeah, like Aaron mentioned something about like the distributors, and I think it's really fascinating to look at the the industry as a whole like we started off the decade with like every studio had like a specialty division and then like a year or two in you know paramount vantage gone you know like <laughs> right all of the stu all of the tiny mm -hmm. you know sort of more independently minded things were gone with the exception of like fox searchlight which is staying the course but like and what that meant for your a24s your annapurnas you know, your neons, like how long has neon been around? And Only they got, a few years. Like a few suddenly, years, yeah. And they suddenly got emerged. a foreign language 
best picture winner like right something never happened before in academy history give or take you know the last emperor but like yeah that's a that's a crazy like tumultuous time um especially for independent films and how they've gotten sort of distribution so i, I definitely felt like you know with a 24 in particular like making a brand from indie cinema like i'm sitting here looking at these coffee table books yeah that i bought from them uh when they saw i'm waiting for more to go on sale uh but you know like a student like an independent studio has like coffee table books <laughs> like right. they're making and selling because people love these movies so much and and so that was really fascinating to see right and i think just before we get into the categories i think my thoughts on the decade are just the number of unique voices and this is everything that you guys have said all the culmination of the ways that you can distribute now, the ways that you can make movies. You know, I talked about Tangerine being shot on an iPhone. Um, the way that, I mean, sure, these th- these things are not new per se because Robert Rodriguez has been like championing this forever. Um, but just the way that this decade felt different is that you, when I think back to like other decades, you think about these like staple directors, like the Spielbergs of the world, or Scorsese also had like a strong run. I mean, these directors didn't go away but you definitely heard a lot more names that you were unfamiliar with and you're willing to see these movies. And I think back to all these trailers cause Aaron and I love trailers. But I think about watching all these trailers for things like Monos or tigers are not afraid or, um, uh, like weird quirky movies like, like, uh, uh, whatchamacallit, um, Anomalisa or something like that where it's like, Hey, that's cool. Like I definitely see like a lot of voices here that I have not heard before. And I think that it's just, the way that our lives are now, you know, the internet is at our fingertips and the way that we can watch and consume media is, is very widespread, but um, it also allowed for much more inclusion, I would say um, from people that we normally wouldn't see. So this goes to your point, Terrence, about just, you know, the, the quote unquote explosion of, of international foreign cinema. But um, yeah, I mean, the, the decade has been uh, very, very, uh, varied i would say but as we jump into some categories here uh feel free to interject with some some of your own categories as we go through but one of the things that we aaron and i were putting together a list and we sort of just were naming genres so this is like in not any particular order but um documentary films is something that that we thought about and you know coming off of 20 2009 and moving into like the decade i mean we started having much more of an impact within documentary films i mean People started see like how many people I know I can't see your hands, but how many people like have had <laughs> friends that have said, Hey, you should go watch Free Solo. It's one of the best movies of the year. It's like one of my old bosses said this to me. It's like documentaries before were stuff like Hoop Dreams or something like that, where nobody really saw this and they were like on PBS, but they've just really had this emergence as um a very strong category over this past decade, I, I would say. Well, it thoughts. speaks it speaks once again to the the advent of streaming, how accessible they are to begin with, right? I mean, there's it's one thing to sure. be like, there's this great documentary I saw, you know, in a theater somewhere randomly, or you know, PBS played this one night only or something. But now on Netflix, where they're producing that, you know, Prime or what have you, they're produce, you know, there's documentaries that are either going there or they're producing themselves. And that, I mean, and that speaks to both feature length films as well as like the various like episodic documentary uh, narratives that have come out, like uh, like especially in the crime section, that seems to be very popular. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, there's there, there's certainly been a lot of strong, you know really strong documentaries that have come out. 
that that being said, I'd be remiss not to mention like Fahrenheit 9/11 came out in like what 08 or whatever, and that Two, was you know, yeah. It, it's still the biggest like documentary of like all time as far as the theatrical movie going experience goes. Right. Um, but regardless, yeah, there. I mean, there's a lot. I have four or five documentaries on my uh, my top 100 that just really stood out to me. I mean, I, um, yes, Free Solo. Uh, I talked, and it was one of my honest favorite films of the whole decade. I mean, it's mm-hmm. one that I, I I continually call like the best thriller of that year because it's kind of incredible in terms of this the work done to show like what's going on as well as telling like a very interesting character story about uh, alex hall and like what he's going through in his own like personal life but i mean that's just one of right. a number of documents the act of killing is another one that really stands out for i think a lot of people as far as i made a lot of that made a lot of like top 100 lists yeah and the, and the, the follow-up the look of silence as well but yeah there's yeah yeah i think it's really interesting to look at how document documentarians played with like the form of the documentary yeah mm-hmm. um you know i'm thinking of uh, one of my friends i told him to watch kink um which is this documentary about uh kink studios this porn company um in san francisco and like that documentary is really like a workplace comedy but <laughs> it's a de- because it's really it's really funny like christina Voros yeah. made that documentary really really funny um and not even just sort of from the absurdity, but it's like seeing all these people in this, in in how they work. Whereas like the year before that, we got or two one or two years before that, we got stories we tell from right. Sarah Polly. Sarah Polly, like, yeah. That's totally different, you know. Or I think of something that's made purely from archival footage, like Apollo Eleven, um, and just like the way it wasn't all like, you know. Something interesting, talking head. Something interesting, talking right. head. You know, documentary. Yeah, found ways yeah to like, really like this frontline style type PBS style documentary yeah. where, you know, I think about that too. And I think about, you know, something like, I think about the significance of geopolitical documentaries um, this past decade and how, like what you were just saying, it, it seemed to be a, a past tense type thing. You'd be like, well, this is what happened during the Vietnam War. You know, like you get fog of war, like what, like 2003 or 2004 or something like that. Where it's like, well, this is, you know, how we thought about it, how we should have thought about it was this. And then in real time, you're getting stuff like Citizen Four. And this is not a film where like, he has to sneak it out in like a cake or whatever the case is. You know, it's like, yeah. this is crazy. You know, like this is this is amazing how fast it is and how fast it spreads. But there's, I mean, additionally, there I mean, there's ones that are just great, great commentaries on society from kind mm-hmm. of a micro level. Like you mentioned, stories we tell, which I think is, a, I mean, that's a fantastic movie. Um, Exit through the gift. Banksy made a movie, which is one of my favorite movies of the decade, which is ridiculous, <laughs> but it's true. Yeah. And it goes into the art culture and like how ridiculous it is as far as what people look at and how like this really silly man that was trying to do this one thing became this completely different thing. And here's a whole movie that documents that and both puts on display this very humorous story as well as one that's like critiquing the very thing that's being, you know, championed to some degree. Like there's this fascinating yeah. stuff like that uh, or like Minding the Gap, which go, I mean, that which is like the boyhood of documentaries um, right. and, and and finds more fascinating ways to present like various people on different tracks of life that have like various backgrounds and they grow up to become certain kinds of people, which speaks to, again, what, what, what many people in, you know, reality, which is, this is still reality, but reality are going through and like, not a matter of nature versus nurture, but like a matter of like how one comes up and what kinds of influences, even if they're the same influence can lead to different tracks for different people. 
And there's yeah. there's a lot of like fascinating stories being told in that in that realm. Yeah. Well, let's jump into the next category. And Terrence, you talked about this, like the dominance, and so did Mark Johnson, taught the dominance of like the MCU. Um, mm-hmm. This is a decade of movies. This is like the, one like the strongest through lines of the decade. And just to set it up, you know, not the number of movies, but just how this sort of changed the way that we can distribute movies. Like they're not just summer blockbusters. They come out in like April, May, June, you know, August, whatever the case is. Like, so I'd love to hear February. Yeah. Yeah, Like, you know, I just love to hear like how this and maybe even other Marvel comics, I mean, I'm sorry, other comic book, uh, like DCEU stuff. Um, how, how did that change this decade, Terrence? Well, like what Marvel has accomplished, in the past decade is like unprecedented (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. they sold off the rights to all of their most popular characters you know spider-man is at sony uh the x-men are at fox universal still has the hulk for some reason and so they were like hey so we want to build like a 22 film franchise with like b-list characters or c-list if you look at like the guardians of the galaxy Mm -hmm. and you know, building interconnected universes, like we didn't really see those where not like on this scale. Not on the scale of like, you know, Iron Man is over here and like the Hulk is over there, but they're in the same world and the same time. You know, and then we bring Captain America back to life and so now he's in the modern times. And then we're gonna team them up and then we're gonna add in some more characters and then we're gonna go off to space and we're gonna have a movie about a talking tree. <laughs> and a raccoon, you know, and that'll make us what seven hundred fifty million dollars, and then we'll go, you know, to Wakanda, <laughs> and we'll make mm-hmm. a movie about, you know, a whole bunch of black people, and we'll make billions, and then, you know, just that, that like foresight in building, and it's really fascinating to look at it, you know, talking about like the DC extended universe and what, you know, Man of Steel came out in twenty thirteen. Yeah, mm-hmm. And so Warner Brothers definitely had a plan in place to mimic that. And it really got studios into thinking about you have all of these properties, but putting them in one place and how does that work? But like the MCU is the only one, you know, and it's, it's amazing to think about what Kevin Feige was able to accomplish being under Ike Perlmutter for so many years. Mm-hmm. Um that we even got here in the first place is a miracle. Um, But then you look at something like DC and it's like, man of steel. I really like that movie, but it was definitely a harbinger of the bad things to come, you know, because it's like, it was all super serious and Superman is a very serious character, but he's not dark and gritty Batman. And Uh so when you pair them up and then you drop wonder woman in there, it, you know, you get a bad result and then Justice League for a myriad of reasons, you know, just didn't hit. And so, you know, when when somebody writes the book on the MCU, it'll be really fascinating to look at that. I mean, comic book movies have always had, you know, a high place since sort of the late 2000s. Um, but, yeah, definitely it, they definitely Marvel took it to another level. Yeah. Aaron, what were your thoughts on the MCU, DCEU? I mean, you can't avoid it. I mean, it's yeah. <laughs> as, as much as I liked it. I mean, I, there's no movie in that franchise that I dislike. So, I mean, it, it's it's not a matter of like 
how much I like movies, but like no matter how much I want to like both share my thoughts on other movies coming out around the same time or whatnot, it's a dominant force as far as what's being talked about, what's being looked at, what's being you know in the news when any kind of update comes. Like look at the first set photo from this or whatnot. Like it's all there, and the the best I like coming at it from the most positive perspective I can because of the amount of opportunity it's given to you know, the massive amounts of people that work on these films and like the, you know, outside of the, I don't know, the, the, the Twitter universe or like whatever dark sides there are of people that are like vying for saying this is the best one and you're wrong and fighting over it and the way they do for, especially in the kind of competition uh, between the, the MCU and the DC universe. The, the better thing is all the other stuff, which is a good majority of it as far as kids being yeah. inspired by certain things and kids of all kinds being inspired by these kinds of things. I mean, you, I mean, you mentioned Black Panther, but like Captain Marvel as well, let alone other, you know, films that emphasize certain ideals and, and ideas of diversity and what have you that, you know, are that give a lot of people a lot of different kinds of heroes to look at um, and ideally take not them, you know, literally, but take the kind of what they're projecting out there as a means to want to be better or want to grow into something that, you know, is meaningful. Yeah. Um, in addition to that, yes, you had you had you had DC's attempt to do the same thing. And I mean, their choice was to run in first instead of walk. And yeah, so it kind of fell on its face for a while before, you know, writing its ship by having more standalone focused films, which have all, you know, done relatively well. Um, either right. From Talking about like Wonder Woman. Yeah. Aquaman, Shazam, right. I mean, either from a critical perspective or which is basically all of them when it comes to this or from a box office standpoint, which I mean, some of them have made a billion and others uh, haven't. But regardless, I mean, there's in addition to the popularity of them, I think the strength and quality is certainly a factor that plays into, you know, if, we, if we're in a time where you can't put out certain movies into a wide release about them being attached to some kind of IP at least we're getting some quality stuff from these things that have belonged to this IP. So we, you yeah. know, I mentioned, I mentioned mm -hmm. Black Panther plenty just cause they, you know, it stands very high for me, but you, but you have, I mean, not that I'm the biggest fan of it, but you do have Joker. You do have, you do have a film that mm. if you haven't seen certain other movies, <laughs> then yes, this is going to be one that really stands out as being something different to you. And that's not sure. the only one of these, but I mean, there's, there's a lot of auteurs that are out there um, or just filmmakers in general that are, you know, want to challenge the viewer in some way and they're doing it the way that they know how that are given the chance to do so because they have a good pitch that can actually factor into something that they know will like, you know, combine with a genre that's, you know, mainstream that will work for them. And I can only hope that that, you know, goes on as far as letting those kind of filmmakers do more of what in within their sensibilities versus something that, you know, where you can just direct the actors and then everything else is handled by second unit photography or whatever. Like I, I, I want there to be, you know, more of a more clear visions of what's being presented in these kinds of films. Sure. Uh, but yeah, for, but for the think, time being, it's hard to complain about what's getting put out. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting that you mentioned sort of the outdoor nature. Cause one of the fascinating things to me, sort of with the rivalry between DC and Marvel, you know, is the thought that like, Oh, like the DC movies are like director driven. You know, Warner Brothers is a director-driven studio and what that means. And, you know, the auteur of the MCU is, you know, the auteur okay. is Kevin Feige. But, like, Ryan Coogler's approach right. to Black Panther, him and Rachel Morrison and Ruth Connor and Hannah Beekler, you know, and uh, Ludwig 
Corinth and you know that team is so different in making a movie than to like Taika Waititi for Thor Ragnarok like all of the right. Thor movies feel like different films because of who you know one of them is really bad but that's neither here nor there um <laughs> you know but it's based off of who who helms it him. yeah and it's really James, James Gunn's another good example of this where they there's right. a uniquely yeah, to James like, Gunn and so it's really interesting to think about how you can have this big overarching thing that all functions on one singular timeline and has been masterminded by one man and that they all, you know, occupy the same, you know, like you're not going to get like a Joker looking movie in the MCU, but like the themes and the way these directors direct are totally different right. um, across the films, which is really interesting. Yeah, and as, just much the, as, just... as much as there's criticism about some of the Marvel films feeling like similar to each other, I mean, there's an aesthetic there. There's a house brand for sure, but there are, yeah. there, there are. I mean, I can, I can lick out, I can list out the the films that really feel like they are driven by the creators involved in them, even if they fit into a certain style. I feel like mm-hmm. like Doctor Strange does feel like a Scott Derrickson film. It feels like something that goes into his sensibilities and what he and along with Robert right. Cargill for that matter. But, Cargill, I mean, yeah, the writer. But Black Panther is very obvious because everybody's black. But I mean, there's yeah. <laughs> the, the, um, but I mean, the, Kevin, like what? About it, like Kevin being like, hey Ryan, like come make this movie and he's like okay so i need like ruth carter like i need this black woman to be my production designer i need my black woman to be my costume designer i need a woman to be my cinematographer i gotta have my dude from usc come here and kevin was like all right yeah (laughs) you know and and the things that i'll add to the mcu discussion you guys have touched on everything i was going to say is um when you look back on it in its infancy in 2012 it culminates in in Terrence's like number six movie of of the decade, The Avengers, right? And you're just like, are they going to be able to pull this off? And they pull it off. Like Josh Whedon just pulls it off. It's a great movie, super fun, puts everybody together, and then it expands from there. And I think that's one of the the um, incredible feats about it is that we we kind of all knew that it was going to be okay, but when you look back on it, 2012 was like eight years ago. And where they have finished with Endgame is a totally different tone altogether. And it's yeah. it's fantastic to see that. The, the, I think that the last thing I'll say is just MCU and DCEU, like, they're not without their criticisms. Aaron, you just touched upon it. People have said, well, the, the MCU movies all look the same. Same color palette, same sort of, like, general tone in, in story. Um, but Which extends also, to Disney in general, I would argue, but that's a different topic. Yeah, and we've also already discussed, though, that these directors also have their own imprint on it with the, the people that you guys mentioned. Um, let's move on to the next category. The next category we've also talked about, which is like, the rise of art house distributors. And one of the questions I have for you guys here, we, we talked about A24, Annapurna, and Neon. Um, I wasn't sure if Blumhouse would be included in this because you don't typically think about it as, as art house. I would. But it is like I mean, a small the, studio. That's it's like, a small studio giving, you know, the giving a chance to to you know newer and younger artists so yeah and it, making it, bank you know what i mean so but yeah. the rise of art house is a fascinating to- topic and and terrence uh, i'd love to hear your thoughts on on where this took us and you mentioned neon too with parasite but you know where where did this take us well i think blumhouse is particularly fascinating because the horror horror you know doesn't get the respect that it deserves but it is probably the most profitable film genre out there relative um, to budget for sure yeah relative to budget and they were like okay 
we're not giving any filmmaker more than $5 million. Right. And it was like, and the filmmakers were like, all right, we'll rise to that challenge. And then they ended up getting a distribution deal with Universal, which is how you get something like Get Out, you know. And Mm -hmm. it was really, you know, Annapurna, I don't know how much longer they will be around. Right, Um, Right. Because what is interesting is to look at like these different distributors and like the brand they are trying to build via the movies that they are releasing. So like with Disney, you know, you're never getting anything over like a PG 13 ever from Disney. Um, maybe with Fox search, like being bought by Disney, that's like a different story, but like, you know, you're getting family friendly entertainment. And so these indie distributors are like, so what can we do to corner the marketplace on certain things and get people to come. So it's like A24 is like the cool brand. You know, Annapurna was like Megan Ellis's bank account <laughs> brand. Right. Um, Neon. Neon, I think, is even more offbeat than um, A24. But it was, there were all of these, you know, indie movies that were not getting picked up by the bigger studios because all their small art house divisions were going away. And these indie studios were like, okay, we'll give them a budget for marketing. We'll put them in theaters um, and see how they go. Mm-hmm. Aaron, what were your thoughts on on the rise of Art House and how much of an impact? I mean, these these people have won awards as well. I mean, the main takeaway is that any one of these studios that we've mentioned are films that I've... Bloomhouse, there's some exception, but if like A24, Annapurna, or Neon has a film coming out, I'm interested in it because of the brand. Uh, right. right, which I think speaks heavily to the kind of appeal that they have as far as the the quality of films that they're putting out, let, let alone you know what they're doing and representing. Um, it, 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 there's you know misses here or there or what have you, but like I'm never not intrigued by a new film from this label on it because I know that's been chosen very specifically to be a part of their brand, which is something I've come I've you know respect. I can there's a number of a24 films and Annapurna films that I, I know are on my, my top 100 as a whole. But I, I mean, in terms of how it's impacted the decade, I mean, which is with success. I mean, indie film has been on the rise since the early 90s, since the 89 with like what Sex Lies and Videotape was like really kicking off thing, like Reservoir Dogs. Like, so it's, you know, we've, we've had indie film for a long time as far as hitting this kind of mainstream level. Um, in this decade, again, I mean, um, uh, the major factor continues to be the v- the VOD and streaming aspect where you get a chance to kind of really take a second look at some of these things or a first look for people that just don't have the theaters that play these art house films around them, uh, which is mm-hmm. highly beneficial. Um, it sucks as far as certain films just not being able to crack anything when it comes to a theatrical experience, but at the same time, the fact that it's out there for people to see um, as opposed to having to wait for it to come or only hearing about it and never actually seeing it. I mean, it's a give and take, but it's one that, you know, has certainly left a mark. Yeah. And I forget who, uh, I mean, just overall, I mean, I was going to ask like who, who distributed it follows, but I don't think it was one of these folks, right? It's a, it's radius, which is like a weird Weinstein yeah. offshoot. You know, same with, um, yeah. snow piercer is the same. Yeah. 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 And, you know, this is to Terrence's point, you've seen all these come and go. I mean, I remember Film District, which released uh, Drive, um, and then I forget which one was, like, Only God Forgives, like, uh, the Wending Ruffin uh, one. Um, but yeah, there's all these, these like, like, small studios that, that there's were There's these smaller ones that are, yeah, like, 
the film district open road another like those are ones that are trying to do yeah. like some, like mid budget stuff but couldn't quite crack it like STX is like the last of those STX, and even they're yeah. constantly struggling with things yeah but yeah just the, the rise of art house has been profound in this past year and we talked about a lot of the titles that again not even the titles that people have seen but just titles that are around like monos or something like that um that are just being picked up by these movies and what's fascinating to me about this discussion is is just the Lulu Wang thing, and she had said when she had uh, during some Hollywood Reporter roundtable, she was asked by uh, one of the streaming services to to purchase her film for double the money, is what she said. But she said, "No, I want to go with um, one of these because I want to build my own brand, like the Lulu Wang brand, not just the Netflix or the Amazon Primes of the world." Um, and so she went with like an independent distributor, and it worked out, but it also kind of was like a bummer that she didn't get nominated for anything during Oscars. But um, segueing into that, we, we move into like this, a huge kickoff for female directors. You know, I mentioned it with Catherine Bigelow winning best picture for um, her locker, her locker. And then it just, every, every, there's a lot of women at the helm. You mentioned uh Wonder Woman, and then you also have just a bunch of movies that are directed by females that were super impactful. I mean, one of my favorite movies of this past decade, which didn't make it into my list, but was uh, You Were Never Really Here, which is by Lynn Ramsey. And I'd love to hear, Terrence, just your thoughts on not even the rise. I mean, they've, they've female directors have always been here, but there's just a larger impact now, it seems, though, in the, in the 2010s. Yeah. I'll second. You were never really here. That actually made my top 100. Uh, mm. That movie is brutal, but it's brilliant. Um, it is. I think. I think it's sort of our our two topics are linked. I think that like the um, rise in these indie studios that are not, you know, held by some bigger corporate overlord, allowed for, you know, these women to get a bigger opportunity because they, these studios were looking from like, how do we stand out? How are we unique? We need the newer voices. We need, you know, these types of things. I think about like, you know, Lady Bird is one of my favorite films of the decade. And even yeah. though, you know, Greta Gerwig is a white woman, grew up in Sacramento, like that movie is literally about me and my mother, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, I was just a black kid a little further South, uh, in the East Bay. So, right. You know, I think the rise was really just dedicated to, like, more opportunities just being given. You know, they've always, everybody has the skill. It's like whether you get the opportunity. And I think it was particularly interesting, you know, Patty Jenkins was going to direct Thor 2. Natalie Portman wanted her. um, (laughs) You know, Natalie Portman wanted her to do it, and then it got messed up and then we never thought we'd see natalie portman in an mcu movie again and then she popped up in endgame um and she's gonna be but, the new thor yeah. well she didn't really pop yeah, they used like, footage involving her <laughs> she, didn't, she didn't come back to film <laughs> anything <laughs> listen that that she was there at all <laughs> you know but like patty jenkins does wonder woman right and i think that just the interesting thing about this decade was that like more people were given the opportunity and not even just like the opportunity to succeed, but the opportunity to fail, right. you know, like this new decade, like birds of prey, isn't my favorite movie, you know, but like yeah, women aren't going to not get a movie 
a big superhero movie now because like that movie didn't make a billion dollars. You know, that's sort of where the shift has, has come in, really. Aaron, what are your thoughts on on uh, the impact of female filmmakers in the 2010s? You know, it's interesting. The it's a it's a weird shift that's come from not necessarily like social relevant, but like it's, you look back at like the history of film, and there's a lot of women filmmakers in the 20s and 30s and even the 10s um, before that for whatever reason shifted it was a producer's game back then um and like the director was kind of after the fact and there's a lot more of that and then it kind of just went away for a while and not that there's not female filmmakers from throughout the you know the century but it's come back in a bigger way as far as how notable it seems to be not like you mentioned like it's not as if there haven't been female filmmakers for the past you know century once again since but it's since movies yeah yes but i mean it's there's certainly whether it comes from campaigning or just making, you know, making your voice loud or what have you, there is a stronger prominence in the fact that this has become, you know, more of a thing worth celebrating or what have you. Um, especially mm-hmm. when it comes to films that are, you know, on a bigger scale. There's only so many films directed by women that have, you know, been had budgets of over a hundred million dollars, and some, you know, some succeed, some don't. But at the same time, it's th- that level of opportunity, which you know goes for any a number of groups that aren't white male that you know counts for something and it it can be a shame as far as the impact that a you know a perceived failure has on someone's career versus the failures that happen over and over again for other very specific groups that continue to keep going on to make the same kind of thing anyway um but those chances are being put out there and that that does make a difference that does leave an impact and even and regardless of like the success involved or the critical components there is the kind of the attention that goes to the films themselves that makes a difference where you can see certain things in these films that you wouldn't get in another film or in the same film directed by another kind of person you have those little moments that while i can't necessarily relate to them i'm sure many other people can as far as little bits little character moments here or there that just wouldn't otherwise ever be seen um Mm -hmm. and i think that i mean I, i can speak to that as far as you know uh, movies made made it made it by, by black filmmakers, not black characters, or even Jewish filmmakers. But I mean, there's there's very much things going on in these kinds of films. Uh, not that they're a kind of film, but they're made by certain filmmakers that just they leave in those moments that like matter. That you know have that extra little something that gives you know various viewers a, a chance to kind of connect on a different way. Completely. And just a shout out, you know, I, I had the the writer. Directed by Chloe Zhao, and now she's going to be doing some Eternals with a uh, jacked-up Camille Nanjiani. But uh, there's just a lot of movies that have been directed by females that people have seen. And beyond that, not just Helmi, but, but Terrence, you just mentioned all these other fantastic female filmmakers in their right of costume design and uh, uh, whatchamacallit, um, cinematography. Uh, you know, Mudbound was a cinematographer. She she uh, got some acclaim during the time, but her her position was correct, which is we're, we've been here. We're here. Nobody's just really given us a chance. And so I, I loved her roundtable discussion a couple of years ago when, when she was talking about Mudbound. But uh, let's move into... Uh, another large topic here, LGBTQ re- representation. Um, I've got at least two movies on my on my list that we just talked about in the last hour uh, on my list here. But Terrence, uh, what was the impact of this category for the decade? I mean, we've, we've seen an explosion of movies here. Moonlight, Beginner. Beginners was like early on, too. That won Christopher Plummer and Academy Award. Um, mm-hmm. The Kids Are All Right, you know, The Handmaiden, Love, Simon. So it's not just these small, dramatic movies 
it's a large teenage happy movie too. Love Simon is one of those things. But uh, what were your thoughts on on LGBTQ representation in the 2010s? I mean, I have four LGBT movies in my top ten. Mm-hmm. Um, if we, we want to argue Black Swan, maybe five. Um, <laughs> I'll allow but, it. You know, it's it's similar to the female filmmakers thing. It's just like it's just the opportunity. Mm-hmm. You know, or like, and I really think, you know, we, you talked a lot about the social network and sort of the effect that it had, but I think social media in general has really helped out underrepresented voices in a way, um, because like people are not going to, as much as I love Cruel Intentions, right? Um, one of my favorite movies of all time, like Joshua Jackson <laughs> in that movie. <laughs> It's so stereotypically 90s. Like, people just won't tolerate that now. They, they want to have bigger voices. They want, you know, these characters to not just be the, the quippy sidekick. They want them to have some interesting in, investment, you know, in, in character and be the leads of movies, you know, or get into complex stories. You know, like Moonlight right. is a really fascinating example because that's not a coming out story, you know. That's just mm-hmm. a, it's like a, I mean, he is coming to realization of sexuality, but it's not like, hey, mom, you know, I'm gay. Like, right. don't hate me. You know, Love, Simon is, is a little bit of that. But like, Love, Simon is also a rom-com, you know, so it, right. you've just got these characters in these different arenas. Um, and then the filmmakers, you know, got a lot of queer filmmakers being allowed to make movies, um, you know, people who value these people as characters not just as like box ticking i think that's what you really saw started to see aaron your thoughts i mean it's a similar thing like terrence was saying as far as like our previous topic but at the same time i think i guess to expand on in something uh, new i guess you look at these uh you look at the way characters are presented and yeah there's you know something enriching about seeing various types of filmmakers being able to tell certain stories or writers for that matter um and i think it what you can really tap into is how you present certain stories and how much certain aspects don't matter as far as the film overall it matters as far as the audience that gets to see something that they don't get to see very often and, and, you know, as far as the kind of the impact that a film has, but in terms of like the stories being told, it's the kind of thing where you can you can tell the same story differently or like with different kinds of characters and you, and you can get a, a similar result. But like, what does it matter? You you have you have something that that's special to a You know, a certain group that can leave that difference while still getting this kind of story that others may be like, yeah, I'm familiar with this, but I've gotten something new out of this back. I'm thinking of something like Pain and Glory last year where it's like, yes, Antonio Banderas is playing a gay character. And it's like, that's, that's, I'm not, I can't, I'm not saying like I should disregard that, but there's like a neither here nor there factor. It's about like what he's going through as a person. It happens to be this kind of person. And great. Like it doesn't, that's not a, that's not a, um, you know, a, a huge priority for me, but at the same time, the fact that it exists to begin, and it's from Pedro Almodovar, so it's not like it's wildly different from him to begin with. But I mean, there's sure yeah. <laughs> I mean, there there's uh, there's a number of stories like that from throughout the you know the decade um, yeah. that involve certain kinds of characters where the film is just good in and of itself, and the fact that it's dealing with a certain you know a certain aspect of culture of people's lives, what have you. It's like yeah, that's it. 
whether or not it's a matter of fact aspect of presenting it or if it's one that's you know it leaves a direct impact on what kind of story is being told it exists to begin with and it's getting the kind of representation and praise that it deserves given the, the you know the quality of said films you know right matters yeah and i think sort of something that you mentioned that's really interesting is thinking about the characters because like even though there's still a long way to go it's this decade really started to feel like we're not box ticking with LGBT characters anymore. Right. Like we don't need the gay best friend. Like it's fine if they're there. Right. But like, you know, we don't need it. Like you can have like God's own country, which is like the gay farmer, mm-hmm. you know, in, I think it's somewhere in the UK Highlands, you know, you can have that at the same time as you have a moonlight as a, the way he looks is about Brazilian teenagers. One of whom is disabled. Like, that sort of breadth of of opportunity is what was really interesting. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I'll add here is, Terrence, to your point, it wasn't just about a, hey, I'm coming out type movie anymore. I mean, you get stuff like Carol, where it's just, they are, they have a love relationship. It's not about coming out. I mean, it also becomes widely, quote unquote, popular. I mean, you get something like Call Me By Your Name. Uh, mm-hmm. where Timothy Chalamet, everyone's just like, it's one of the best performances. And if you don't save for the credits, you're missing out because he does some tremendous acting in those last uh, 30 seconds. But um, the, the the fun thing it's that like I'll say... It's like two minutes. It's like, well, yeah, is it's it like two it's minutes? A, yeah. It's a yeah. whole credit sequence. So yeah, it's a yeah. while. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. You should stay. Don't leave. The movie's not over. Um, for any movie is what I'm saying. Uh, and the, the fun thing I'll say is, uh, I love how uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire 2019... Neon could have possibly had two contenders for best in a uh, best foreign picture, uh, but France went with like Les Misérables, right? And it's like mm-hmm. it's amazing that it, first that's like that's like an, an awards thing that we can talk about later. But you know, it's just amazing to me just how these stories are are just far and very. I think you said it best, Terrence, where you saying they just have different arenas now, and they always have had, but. I, yeah, it's just fascinating to see this. I mean, this is just the the world that that we're in. Great. Uh, let's move, let's move a little bit into like some of the uh, uh, other categories here. Um, horror came on strong. We talked about Bloomhouse, but Terrence, when you think about horror in this past decade, uh, I would love to hear your thoughts on on just how funny it was. You know, you get Happy Death Day, The Final Girls. How scary that it might have been. You get it follows. Um, maybe like how how quietly spooky it was. Like with like the guests, like these undertones of like it's it's a menace, but it's also like not an overt menace. Um, mm-hmm. To psychological, like Baba Duke or something like that, and and even like block blockbuster smashes, like like it chapter one. I think this decade was sort of a golden age for horror, which is fascinating because so many people think that the horror genre is dead. Um, mm-hmm. For some stupid reason, it's never. Those people are wrong, especially yeah. looking at these past ten years. Like, what world do you live in? <laughs> like, yeah, it's it's it's, it's, it's like, obvious how good horror has been this year, these, these past yeah. ten years. And like, even if it were dead, it's like musicals. Like, they come back with a force. Um, and they're always musicals have also been strong this decade. <laughs> yeah, yes. like a Mark's like a Mark's number one movie. <laughs> yeah, I you know, it was really interesting to see. Like, I really feel like this decade was a callback to the 70s. Like, I mentioned it when we talked about The Conjuring. Like, the way James Wan shot that, the way the script was written, 
you know, something like The Babadook, it's horror filmmakers really got to lean into like the psychological nature of the genre. You know, a lot of the great horror movies are not about the scares. They're about deeper, you know, contextual issues. Um, you know, something like that of the living dead is a zombie movie, fairly scary, but like, it's really about that period in time. You know, the Babadook is about mental health issues. Um, you know, you had filmmakers really getting to do that. And then you just got, we just got some really crazy films here in the U S in particular. I think that was what was most interesting is like often we have looked to Japan to France, at least in more recent history, to like really hold down the horror front. Um, but now it was like, you know, all hope grown filmmakers. It's like Robert Eggers doing The Witch, you know, that goes right. to Sundance and is, you know, really great. And and it is really interesting because it's like, you know, that was that's a very beloved miniseries, um, based off of a very beloved book. And they managed to do something fresh and new with it. So it really, you know, horror, horror, like I said, horror is never dead. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it taps into a different kind of thing that we, I mean, it's also the horror thing, but it, it taps into another thing that we haven't talked about as far as the, the popularity of nostalgia throughout this decade and how much of that's made an impact. Because there is this yeah, kind of, definitely. I mean, I mean, we're not talking about shows, but Stranger Things is another like example of that as far as, especially sure. specifically 80s nostalgia. Um, and I only imagine that 90s nostalgia is going to start being a thing this decade. But I mean... Um, as, as far Fear as Street's gonna goes, come back with a force. <laughs> Erie, Indiana is back. Um, the the horror genre. I mean, yeah, Terrence has said it as far as and you've mentioned many number of things, Abe. As far as like the highlights and like what you can look at. I, you know, I'm a huge horror fan. We do yeah. multiple bonus episodes in October, very specifically because of how much I'm a big horror fan, and I'd like to get that out there as far as what it's trying to do because. Yeah, the the social value that comes with with um, these movies is incredibly important and also not new. I mean, it's it's something that goes in pretty much every horror movie, give give or take, like you know, ones that are really just made off aesthetic. And I mean, there's so many horror movies made that that's another thing altogether. But as far as widestream or mainstream horror goes, you're you're more often than not getting something that has other things to say about society, which I always find to be fascinating. And looking at my like list. I have a lot of films here that all, and I at first I thought like I don't have too much horror on here given how much I like horror, but like I'm looking at my list, it's like no, there's a lot of films here that kind of represent different like different uh, different uh, ends of the spectrum when it comes to horror. And I, I look at like Shin Godzilla, Mother, The Witch, Only Lovers Left Alive, Midsummer, Black Swan, Enemy, <laughs> Us, get, Attack the Block, Get Out, The Shape of Water, Paranorman. I mean, they're they're all different kinds of horror, which is what I think speaks to how expansive that genre can be you can do a lot of things within the horror realm using horror type characters or thrillers or suspense and like make it or comedy and make it into its own very specific kind of thing to get across whatever message you're going after and i think with the successes of certain kinds of films like peel's films or it or the conjuring universe the only other successful cinematic universe that's emerged this uh, decade um there there's an audience out there that is not only getting to satisfy whatever visceral thrill they want, but also getting to kind of get something out of it, specifically with some of those films that I've mentioned. Um, And in addition to that, you're getting a lot of filmmakers that are just coming out and showing what they got. They're showing their stuff. And it it's 
only going to lead to a brighter future when it comes to this genre, let alone other genres. I, I mean, even people that, I mean, look, at, you mentioned Peel and how he's gotten, he got into horror from, from comedy. I mean, right. there's, you can. Or even, even like a Jim from The Office, right? Yeah. Or James Wan, who, I mean, he's, he started off in horror and now he's making, bil- he's made $2 billion blockbusters in two separate right. franchises. <laughs> I mean, it, there's, there's so much opportunity out there and <laughs> horror is just one of the most, you know, inventive genres that you could come from because you have so much limitless opportunity which i yeah. think is a great way to kind of shepherd um you know creative talent to go on to do whatever they want to do yeah and just before we get to the next category i just want to echo terrence's point about uh u.s horror being homegrown has, has been kind of big like ty west and uh what's his face from vhs um but yeah adam you wingard. get weird i'm sorry adam wingard. Yeah, yeah adam wingard yeah and you get weird cookie movies you know and the appeal is still there. There's still like weird movies like Under the Skin that's still out there that was a horror thriller, but it's very fascinating just to see the expansion of it. Um, so I'm glad that it's still strong and alive. Uh, to some people, it was always alive, uh, but uh, it's a it's an interesting sub or segue into international features because you know we had stuff like train to busan and whatever else that are international features but terrence you talked about this earlier of just the accessibility of international features um and i'd love to kind of um you also talked about you know the culmination of getting parasite winning best picture at the end of the decade but just your thoughts on on the international landscape uh and how people started watching more international movies yeah i mean you know it's really everything is just a cycle. The more that we talk about it, the more that we talked about this decade, the more I'm like, Oh, this is reminding me of like the fifties and sixties where people saw, you know, Bellini movies and Kurosawa movies, you know, all the time. I think streaming, which I'm sure we'll get into a little more, but like really helped out in this respect. I mean, I saw more international films via Netflix. um, And because we're members of the press, like we can actually see them in theaters uh, Mm because they'll screen them. Um, and it was just really interesting getting to see what was coming out of particular industries like South Korea really had a boom, you know, capped off with Parasite, but like, you know, burning train to Busan, um, you know, we have, it wasn't just like the European powerhouses. So like your France's, your Germany's, um, in Spain, you know, we were getting like Matty Diop from, uh, Atlantics. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, it really, it was really, and a separation, of course, from Iran, uh, my favorite film of all time. Yeah. You know, but like, I think about that, like that movie getting released and being so talked about that made me want to go see it. And it was like, even though there's still a way to go, you know, if theaters come back in whatever form they come back in, you know, mm-hmm. about like, I just felt like more people got a chance to see the stuff that was really good and studios were taking, you know, the challenge of getting them shown. Completely. Aaron, where, where are you with the uh, international features of the 2010s? You know, gr- growing up more before I got to this kind of like level where I'm doing like writing reviews or whatnot, I've always been lucky enough to be in an area where there's a lot of art house theaters around me. So I was able to see, you know, plenty of, all all kinds of films and not just like the main thing that hit theater on a Friday. Um, so it's, you know, just seeing 
the, the uh, you know a continued prevalence of international features it's like great like i there, there's so much interesting stuff out there i i'm it's not a trouble for me to you know walk into a film that's you know not being advertised at every billboard out there and see something um that you know i, I from a culture i don't know know too much about or just something that just interests me and happens to be, you know, coming out of a different country or, you know, featured in a different language. And as a result, there's a lot of films from a lot of different kinds of genres that I really love from this year. Or from, from, I'm sorry, from this past 10 years. Um, mm-hmm. from, ranging from action to horror to animation to dramas. Uh, there's there's so much there. And I guess the, the benefits of that to, like, the decade as a whole is, like, it's one thing to speak for myself, but it's better to say, like, a lot of audiences have embraced this from from various perspectives. Once again, streaming, uh, a huge component of that. Uh, so, kind of a social awareness, just based off the fact that people can talk more about these things and put those opinions out there into the internet and everyone can see it. I mean, it, it it's great. It, it, it's great that you can see these things happen. And whether or not these filmmakers feel the need to like come over to the Hollywood system or keep doing their own thing, um, mm-hmm. these films keep coming. Um, the, there's the whole world out there full of all kinds of movies and it's, uh, you know, it can be thrilling to get the opportunity to have so much variety, um, and giving you different, different ideas of how to look at some similar stories or different kinds of characters or just like what, it, what kind of, uh, filmmaking fabric there is, uh, to compile something that's, you know, utterly unique into itself as far as what it's accomplishing. Mm-hmm. And the last thing I'll add is, is it wasn't just in the form of like live action. It also came in the form of animated. You know, we've talked about your name, but also um, the wind rises. The I wind mean, rises. Yeah, it's brilliant. The wind rises. You know, Wolf Children was talked about a lot too. Uh, uh, the Red Turtle is a film that I'm a really big fan of. Um, Red Turtle, right? So the Illusionist, the not the Ed Norton film, but an animated film from France that I'm a really yeah. huge fan of. Um, right. And then that actually just bleeds into animation as a topic overall before we get into like some some more broad categories. But as a genre, animation it used to just be, oh, Pixar is going to come out with a new movie. I'm going to go see it because it's the strongest of the studios. It has a great story. And then Disney was like, I'm going to stop losing to this guy, so I'll just buy them. But also I'm going to make my own. And you also had all these other, like we mentioned Leica. Aaron had mentioned Paranorman being in his top ten of the decade. Um, like it comes through, but then you also have Sony Pictures, uh, Sony Animation with um, Spider-Verse. So uh, Terrence, the world of animation changed uh, this past decade from it being just blue sky and whatever else, these like lame, not lame, but the, these different like looking things from uh, other than Pixar. How did, how did animation impact you this past decade? I mean, I think one of the most interesting things about animation that came sort of near the end. I can't remember who said it, but they were like re-emphasizing that like animation is a a medium, not a genre. And so like you can have, you know, the devastating Pixar movies. You can have your Disney princess movies. You can also have something like I Lost My Body. Yeah. You can have something like Love and Business. You can have Laika reinvigorate stop motion animation by using the VFX that originally put stop motion animation out of business. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, hearing Travis Knight talk about, you know, making Paranorman and how combining it with 3D effects and not being afraid to mix those is what makes, you know, Paranorman is just brilliant, amazing mm-hmm. film. Um, 
and so yeah, it was just really interesting seeing, you know, Pixar tried to make me cry all the time. <laughs> um, they also it's, they also released one of their worst films, Brave, uh, in the past <laughs> decade. I'll never forgive the Academy for giving Brave the Oscar over Paranorman. Um, that really baffling. Truly, <laughs> <laughs> that, that truly that will hurt me for all time. But yeah, it really you got in Spider Verse. You know what a way to like end. It wasn't the last one, but like what a way to like sort of cap off the decade with like you take a familiar genre, you introduce a protagonist that we that the majority of the public doesn't really know, and then you just get really crazy with what you're doing. Um, it was so it was really great to see people start to recognize that it's a medium and not a genre. Yeah. Aaron, your thoughts on animation the past decade? It's not unlike, you know, horror or foreign films. There's so much opportunity. There's so many things out there, and they're coming from so many different kinds of people. And you got a lot of studios um, beyond just the major ones um, with Pixar and Blue Sky Illumination, um, which is not my favorite, but regardless, <laughs> I mean, they're... <laughs> we, we both um, like the most recent uh, new uh, Guru trailer. Sure. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, no, it, it you know in addition to getting you know Leica and some of these and and the various anime that have come out uh, from like what, Funimation and what have you that made these things and um, you know some of these smaller studios like uh, the Breadwinner is another one that I really like that um, that came from that I think it's like a, a Scottish studio but regard it there's there's a lot of things going on outside of the big ones at the same time some of the big ones are still like they're they're putting that they're putting their abilities to the test as far as like well we're not going to be counted out here we're gonna yeah we're gonna make these giant you know studio mega blockbusters but they're still going to be like well worth it and i look at something like zootopia or coco uh, which i adore i think those are fantastic movies and they're coming out of they're coming out of the biggest studio in the world that dominates everything but they can still put out like incredibly quality product um another one we didn't talk about at all the lego movie which spawned its own like whole franchise as far as like movies go and yeah they kind of petered out there with the ninjago one but I mean, the Lego movie was one of my favorite movies of the year. Thrilling, um, as far as like it being this whirlwind of excitement involving Phil Lord and Chris Miller's like humor, and putting that into you know the, the world of Lego and making something incredibly exciting about that, and then having the bat the Lego Batman movie and doing things not unlike Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse as far as the history of Batman and making that into something you know fresh, refreshing, and new and everything. So there's, I mean, there's 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 it's again it's all that variety it's all it's all the having the chance to see different forms of animation come out and be accepted um on different levels um and seeing you know stories being told that you wouldn't necessarily get uh, in any other place something like i mean you mentioned your name a couple of times and i mean there, there is right. a number of, you know another a number of interesting stories that are coming out of different countries that can present certain things that they just otherwise wouldn't have a chance to do let alone be as expressive as they can because of the medium that allows them to do so um yeah. so at, and there's a lot of play i mean you can play a lot with by having animation there's a way to play around with you know how we're representing characters and what we're doing with them and whether they need voice and dialogue or whether they can just be, you know, mostly silent movies that rely on their actions and what they're displaying on screen. There's so many different ways to handle things and we we're only going to get more and more of that, especially as you, especially as you kind of change around like what kinds of form, you know, where we're able to see these things and what, right. how they're coming out. I mean, there's, there's a lot of, you know, there, there's a limitless appeal to animation because of, 
imagination being a key in how you form these stories. And speaking of how you were able to to see them, Terrence, you've been talking about this the entire time too. You know, the emergence of streaming is is coming super strong, and not just in terms of their own original content, but they've become distributors and they've been vying for Academy Awards. Um, but what's fascinating about this is, yeah, it used to be Netflix used to be a DVD rental from mail, and then it moved into streaming. People were like, "That's never going to work." And now it has all these subscribers, and it's even more prevalent now that there's a, a global pandemic happening. But streaming has come on so strongly that people are still talking about maybe we should just send things to streaming that we would have sent to theaters, but charge it for twenty to twenty-five dollars. Um, would we get more revenue that way? And Terrence, I'd love to hear your thoughts on on just the emergence of streaming, but also its staying power, and also. Um, what it's done for just not just home television, but the theaters, like what, what we all love here. Yeah, I think like a lot of people in the industry are a fan of streaming by virtue of the fact that they're getting like these unlimited budgets, right? Mm-hmm. Amazon spent like a billion on Lord of the Rings or something ridiculous. Um, and so they like it for that, but then they don't like it because they're like, oh, you're ruining the theatrical experience, you know, Barry Martin, Scorsese, uh, even though he just did a Netflix movie. But I think <laughs> one of the things you have to think about is like, and it's interesting in this time of this global pandemic when we're trying to stop thinking about ourselves individually and start thinking about us as a collective, like even with Parasite, as brilliant as that movie was, and as much as I was telling people to go see it, like, I have friends in DC who weren't going to get the movie for like another three weeks, mm-hmm. you know, or like, I'm just thinking about like somewhere in Idaho, was there a theater showing parasite, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, all of these places, um, in which streaming really leveled the playing field for everybody being able to get access to things. And I think that's why you really saw a boom in these other genres, a boom in international film, because it's like, I don't have to, luckily, you know, Aaron and I live in Southern California and you're up in the Bay. Like, we're, what, 10 to 20 minutes away from a theater showing? Right. You know, international films. But, like, if you're in, once again, Idaho, if you're in, you know, if you're not in New York or Los Angeles and you're not going to get this movie for forever, then you don't really have the same sort of feeling behind it. Um, yeah, so I mean, this this has come yeah. up with one of our guests, uh, Philip Price, uh, who lives over in, in is it Arkansas, Aaron? Um, but uh, yeah, Arkansas. Yeah, yeah he mentions this all the time too. He's just one of our guests on the show, but he mentions this all the time, which is that he's got to wait, you know, a, an extended period of time or travel like an hour away to go see a movie that a lot of people have been talking about. Yeah. But Aaron, what are your thoughts on on streaming in this past decade? You know, again, we have really strong films here that have been nominated for awards, but then you have so much content, and now these people have become these people these companies have become powerhouses. They are just printing money. It's it's easy to be like it's a necessary evil to some degree as far as the kind of the amount of stuff they have and control over things. Specifically, when we're talking about Netflix because it's such a like a it's a term that gets associated automatically, which is, you know, it's like saying Kleenex. I mean, it's, it's like the brand is there and everyone wants to use that brand um, as a kind of a way to sum it all down. But I mean, 
the we talk about the the MCU and like the the shift in terms of like what kinds of things people are seeing in theaters, and that's a big reason why streaming has emerged as such a strong element as well because people aren't going to the movies to see things that don't cost a hundred million dollars. And the result of that is, well, you have a lot of things available here, original programming that you can not leave your house for and you can stay at home and watch. And yes, Netflix has afforded some filmmakers massive budgets to do whatever they want to, but they've also given a whole variety of people along with Amazon, along with Hulu, like a whole variety of different films, like uh, be it acquisitions or just, you know, giving the money out, like a lot of, various filmmakers a chance to do basically whatever they want to and it's resulted in a mix of things some are very good some are very bad um some are fine let alone tv series and what have you but like there's a whole cultural shift as far as how people are absorbing their cinematic entertainment uh, to some degree and that's not going to stop um and that'll you know bring us to another topic eventually but i mean what helps is that yeah, if we're gonna if this is going to be a primary way for people to get, find entertainment, it's nice to get a lot of really quality entertainment. I mean, you look. I mean, looking at Netflix alone, yeah, we got a Scorsese film, we got a Coen Brothers film, we 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 got we got um a film. Like we have these auteur filmmakers, a Michael Bay film. We got these auteur filmmakers that are making films that very much feel exactly the like the films that they wanted to make, um that are only that are you know being primarily taken in by people watching them at home on their you know ideally big tv since a theater is just not possible um is there like a is there a downside to this i mean beyond a personal preference of wanting to see things in theaters and thinking that's an experience that should be preserved it's like well they're i mean you're still getting filmmakers doing the thing that they do and the way i try to think of that always is like well i have tons of films of some of my favorite films of all time that i you know came out well before i was born that i've never seen in a theater I mean, how's the, what's that look like years from now for these films? I mean, yeah, there's a lot of, there could be a lot of great films that people really like that they'll just never have a chance to see in theaters because this is where they came out from. But how am I any different in that regard? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, yeah, they're, they're studio powerhouses in the same way that Disney and Warner Brothers are as well, just in a kind of its own way that's certainly become very popular. We should have all bought that Netflix stock back in 2012. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, let's move into some quick hit categories here. Uh, Terrence, be, be, you... Before, be, yeah. hold on, be, real quick, before we get into that, I wanted to read some feedback that we had for some of oh, the yes, categories please. we talked about. Um, we talked about animated films, so I wanted to bring up um, some other listeners' uh, comments on that for favorite animated films of the last decade. Todd Lieben, in front of the show, writes The Lego Movie. Irene writes Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, Kubo and the Two Strings, and Coco. Rachel writes You've, uh, Your Name and Tangled. Chris has Kubo and Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. And then, so speaking of horror films, we had a couple here. Uh, Chris has Hereditary, The Void, The Witch, Babadook, One Cut of the Dead, The Cabin of the Woods, Extraordinary Kill, extra, sorry, Extraordinary, Kill List, Bone Tomahawk, The Autopsy of Jane Doe, Under the Skin, It Follows, Train to Busan, and Jason Coleman, friend of the show, and uh, big participant on the horror episodes. He has Intruders, formerly Shut In, The Dark, Marrowbone, The Lure, The Transfiguration, one of Marcus uh, Robinson's favorite films of that year, uh, Happy Death Day, Train, uh, Train to Busan. So yeah, I just wanted to get those out there before we kind of keep going. Thanks for that feedback. And as we move into the some of the quick hit categories, I mean, Terrence, did you have any stand-up performances, anyone that knocked off your socks, who was a steady performer? Um, Mark Johnson mentioned Christian Bale being probably the, the steadiest in terms of portfolio and being a standout. And then was there anybody new that, that sort of blew you away? Um, that's interesting. Uh, Brad Pitt, because I just looked at Brad Pitt because he 
was my best actor winner for 2019. He was in the running for best actor and best supporting actor in 2011. I think he had a really fascinating decade. Um, you know, his Plan B production company produced a lot of. You want to talk about somebody sort of championing underrepresented voices? He did a lot. Um, produced Twelve Years a Slave and won an Oscar for it. Um, mm-hmm. And he's, I feel like he's the last, one of the last of like, even though he's like a character actor in a leading man's body, he's one of the few people that really feel like a star system throwback. Jessica Chastain definitely had a great decade. Um, literally, once she got on the scene, she never left. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think one surprise, Emery Cohen in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. I don't know mm-hmm. if either of you watched Smash, the TV show. I haven't. NBC. No, but, but Abe really loved Emery Cohen in The Place Beyond the Pines. He couldn't I, stop talking yeah. about how much he was I, not an annoying I, character. And I hated him <laughs> so badly. And then Aaron was like, you know that... Uh, we watched Brooklyn. We're reviewing. Aaron was like, "Yo, that's the same kid from Place Beyond the Fence." I was like, "What? I love him in Brooklyn." Now I feel so conflicted. Yeah, he was so dreadful on that TV show, um, and he was brilliant in Brooklyn. So that was that'd be my big surprise. Aaron, some question: uh, Anyone who knocked off your socks, who delivered constantly, or anyone new who uh, blew you away? I'd have to think about the new one as far as, I mean, because there's, I mean, there's newer, like, like Oscar Isaac kind of just came out this day. Like, he was around in smaller things, but I mean, he kicked off the deck with, like, Inside Lewin Davis and Drive, and then kept it going with a most violent year, Ex Machina, little, and Poe Dameron. I mean, that there's a lot of things, like, <laughs> a lot of winning. Kind of break- as far as a breakout star, yeah. Um, I tend to say Michael Shannon's performance in Take Shelter is my favorite performance of the decade. Uh, I, I just, I, I, <laughs> I think it's, it's incredible it's incredible work from him and i think michael shannon in general has been one of the most engaging presences in movies because of his kind of awkward lankiness that works for this kind of character actor persona that can still like seem like the guy that can be in charge if need be and he's given a variety of different kinds of performances that are generally seen stealing um i mean you've mentioned a lot of good ones already i would speak to i mean we spoke about horror and we spoke about i mean there's a lot of great acting in horror movies that tends to be overlooked. And I mean, some of the, you know, big ones that were, you know, Oscar contenders that didn't go all the way. Yeah. You have Tony Collette in Hereditary and Lupita Nyong'o in Us. I mean, those are great performances, regardless of the fact that they're in the horror genre. They're just really strong performances for everything that's, you know, involved in doing what's needed to be done uh, from an emotional and physical level. Um, S.E. Davis and the Babadook, same way. I mean, that's a more low-key movie comparatively, um, but it's a, very, it's a really strong, you know, uh, lead horror performance um, that has to delve into a variety of emotions and, you know, keep it on a very high level throughout and sustain that and make that, you know, believable and relatable. Um, but, yeah, I mean, yeah, there's... <laughs> there's there, there are a lot of... Um, there's a lot of strong work from a lot of people throughout the day. Of decade. course. It's hard, yeah. it's hard, it's and again, hard this is kind of just like quick shooting, yeah. I but, know, yeah. It's hard for me to pare that down, but those are ones that you certainly like stand out like you know, yeah. to the top. Uh, some some of the folks that stand out in my mind, um, Terrence, it's funny that you mentioned Brooklyn because Saoirse Ronan, uh, we basically saw her grow up. Uh, you have Hannah at the beginning of the decade, and then she's like knocking out Little Women at the end of the decade um, and everything in between, right? So yeah. um, I also want to shout out, um, uh, man, what was um, uh, what was the guy's name? So Inglourious Bastards 2009, but 
when I saw that movie, I was like, you know, I need to see more of this Michael Fassbender. And this past decade, I got a whole bunch of Michael Fassbender. So uh, yeah, he's had to, he's had to slum it a bit in recent years, but yes, for the, the <laughs> first first half of the decade, he was certainly the, one of the yeah a guy who I, I'd say like does not do bad. Yeah. Then yeah. Assassin's Creed happened. It's like okay, well. <laughs> well, now now he's just making big money checks. But um, yeah, there were the, those are two standout performances. Um, so yeah, I'm sure that we'll we'll come to this list a little bit later too. But uh, same question, but now for directors, Terrence, anyone who knocked off your socks, anyone who delivered constantly, and and anyone who blew you away as a as a new director on the scene. Oh my goodness, there were. I got to, to discover so many directors that I had never heard of. Um, you know, the rise of Barry Jenkins mm-hmm. and Greta Gerwig, um, I think. And then Alex Garland, you know, yes. you mentioned Ex Machina earlier. And so that was, this decade was really, really fascinating to look at, like, I'm just literally scrolling through. It's like, oh, like, I found out who Edgar Wright was because I love Scott Pilgrim. And, you know, Christopher McQuarrie, who had an Oscar, I believe, for... Um, the Usual Suspects usual suspects but like you know mission impossible fallout and jack reacher or like he got some fascinating performances out of tom cruise <laughs> yes um you know so th- those would be sort of the top of my list aaron same question uh, uh basically uh knock off your socks deliver constantly or anyone new i mean denny villanueva is considered pretty oh, yes. consistently yeah. um which is, you know, quite strong. I mean, you know, my guys, Tarantino, the Coen brothers, Scorsese, like they're doing their job. Uh, Spike Lee, too, for that matter. Um, Bong Joon-ho had a terrific decade, obviously. Um, Barry Jenkins and Nazca Farhadi, like really, you know, took the scene by storm. Uh, Chazelle, uh, Taika Waititi has become like a force to be reckoned with as far as making, being, making both great, you know, really good movies as well as being just a really fun person to watch. Um, Del Toro, like the the, the three amigos, Del Toro, Inaritu, and Goron, are all you know Oscar winners from this decade. Some multiple Oscar winners. Uh, Ryan Johnson continued cashing in on how good Brick was by making more <laughs> great movies. <laughs> Go see Brick uh, if you haven't. I mean, like Jordan Peele might be like the strongest one of the or at least one of the strongest like breakout like hey i'm making a movie by the way it's going to capture the zeitgeist make a ton of money and be an oscar winner i mean it's, and you know i'm the guy from mad tv so it's like okay sure good job there um i wish i could do more on animation but like lee unkirk with toy story 3 and coco uh which he co-directed with Adrian. i mean there's there's a lot of others as well that i'm sure i can like think about but i mean there's, there's a number of like people in that area ryan coogler of course as well i mean there's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um pta was made, turned out a bunch of movies i really liked yeah. I mean, and jim jarmusch another one of my guys who made like he made patterson one of my, one of my favorite movies my favorite movie of that year let alone uh the dead don't die only lovers left alive like there's yeah there, there's no shortage of uh talented directors uh yeah, there's there's yeah. a lot of people, and I know I'm, men- I'm not mentioning a ton of people that I've you know really responded to over the years. Yeah, you guys have definitely mentioned a lot of them. Uh, I definitely want to shout out uh, Justin Lin as well. I mean, he already had done Fast. Uh, I'm sorry, Tokyo Drift, and also Fast and Furious Four. Fast but then Furious. you get Fast Five in the decade, and it's just like, what the fuck is this movie? Like, I was not expecting this. I clearly was like, I was I was seriously like floored by, no pun intended, floored by like just what I saw. I was like. There's a real movie in this franchise now? This is great. So, yeah. Um, 
Move into come on real quick. Let's yeah. let's get to some feedback again. We got because we oh, have yes, some. Uh, we yeah, got, of course. We got we got one for uh, favorite performances. It's from Chris. He writes Francis McDormand in Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Uh, Joaquin mm-hmm. Phoenix in The Master and Tony Collette in Hereditary. And um, let's see, directors Chris again chimed in with uh, Tarantino has pulled it out of the bag this decade. Three totally awesome films. Also has to add uh, Ari Aster. There you go. And and Terrence, I look to your your uh, expertise at, at, as an awards person here, mm-hmm. but uh, in terms of the Oscars, um, did they get it right? I mean, this is not like every year. <laughs> We're not going to pick every year, but did yeah. they get some of the choices right? Did they get some of the choices right? You already mentioned Green Book. Um, what's the category that's yeah, still missing? Yeah, 2018. Obviously, they got it, they got it right there, but. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> But like, you know, the category that's still missing is like, you know, people have talked about more most popular category and people are like, no, 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 let's oh use God. And then what's uh, what's the hosting situation like for you? Um, man, the Academy, you want to talk about living a lifetime in a short span of time. The Oscars, you know, incredible upheaval. You think about at the beginning of the decade where we had, you know, the 10 films with the guaranteed 10 slots on the ballot. And then like a year later, that went away. And they were like, all right, we'll do up to 10, but with only five spots on the ballot. Um, and they're really big push to diversify the membership. They still have a long way to go. But like, it has really paid some dividends in terms of thinking about what an Oscar movie is, you know? And that's different from like what a good movie is. <laughs> you know, you have to separate those two things in your, in your mind. Um, because there have been great movies that have never been nominated for any Oscars. There are great filmmakers who've never won, you know, it's not the end all be all, but it does do a sort of time capsule in time. I think the only year they really, truly and utterly got it wrong was Green Book. Mm -hmm. Like another one people might point to is like the King's speech. And it's like, you know, Black Swan is in my top 10. Social Network is in my top 20. I get it. Mm-hmm. It's not a bad winner. It's just not the best one. But like Green Book is just terrible um, <laughs> compared to the competition. But like, you know, like the artist like swept its way to winning the Oscar. You know, you have Argo, you have, but it, it wasn't even so much as just like the big best picture category you have, you know, best you mentioned, you know, the three amigos, like, one or two, one non, um, you, one U.S. born director, I think, one best director this decade, if yeah. I'm not mistaken, and that's Damien Chazelle. Yeah, like that's really fascinating for the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, which is you know here in L.A. and they really started broadening their horizons in a way that they've never done before. I mentioned her for screenplay, you know, Get Out. For screenplay, that was great. And and Chazelle didn't go on to you know make Cats, so he really lost out on being you know, something <laughs> unique. Give him time, um, <laughs> you know. But that's but think about that. Like the guy who won Best Director at the beginning of the decade directed Cats, and how mm-hmm. terrible that was. You know, I still haven't seen it. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm resisting. And you'll never but... need to. Yeah, you're I waiting don't... for theaters to open again so you can go mm-hmm. to the film experience. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're um, waiting for the butthole. <laughs> God, I saw that on Twitter and was like, "What in the world?" Um, but yeah, it just it was a really big upheaval and like they really. If you compare like this decade to like the '90s, 
I think is really interesting to look at just how far they've come in like a really short period of time, you know, in the hits, history of cinema. It's like the 90s, it's like you got Silence of the Lambs, you got American Beauty, and then you have literally nothing but two and a half hour period pieces mm-hmm. winning Best Picture, snagging up all the awards. And now we've got like Shape of Water, where this woman, you know, it's not all this movie is about, but like she has sex with a fish monster, you know, like. <laughs> <laughs> how that one I still don't know how that one best picture even though I love it, it and so that was that's that's been really heartening to see it's like slowly but surely they're really broadening their horizons mm-hmm. Aaron what about you for for the Oscars how will they be remembered I I mean I agree with pretty much everything Terrence has said I mean the, it, it's not the end-all be-all but at the same time it gives you a good like clue as to what's really hitting the attention of people. And yeah, there are more films that are of things you wouldn't expect than ones that feel like typical Oscar films that actually won the big awards. Um, I can gripe all I want about things that didn't end up winning, um, like Social Network for Best Picture, or yeah, anything that wasn't Green Book as long as it was a Bohemian Rhapsody. Um, but the, um, the, the, the opportunities that, they, that the Oscars create, let alone awards in general, is always something that I like to think about because it's not necessarily about just you know who wins the award or whatnot, but the fact that some people are being spotlighted, and and that's going to lead to more work for those people. Or the, and there's so many different kinds of people that are now being out for awards that you know wouldn't have been in certain other decades, and that's important. Um, as far as who's winning said awards versus what's not, I mean, you know, part of not winning an award means that filmmakers and actors are still challenged to keep doing something not necessarily to win the oscar and then they can quit but the idea that you get close to like some kind of like statue like this and you don't get it i mean i i can't imagine that not being like well my drive is going to be less next time i'd like to think it just keeps challenging you it makes me Mm -hmm. i mean i'm very happy that leonardo dicaprio is fantastic and once upon a time in hollywood but him winning for the revenant made me wonder is he going to like not be struggling for oscars anymore or is he going to like keep doing being a great actor and Mm -hmm. i mean i I can't say that for everyone that's won won an academy award i mean so it it, it's gonna be neat to see yes where things lead to for these various oscar winners um that have come out of this decade like i can't wait to see whatever bong joon ho does next and he's gonna make whatever he wants to because he's that's what he's been doing i don't expect him to be suddenly changed by the fact that he has an oscar in his hands sorry four oscars in his hands um but the um there's there's a lot to take away that doesn't just come from how great it is that certain people that i really like won oscars but the fact that we're putting a lot of things in the spotlight that are you know important to look at important to remember as well as things that you're going to know because of the fact that they didn't win or weren't even nominated uh Mm. some films you're just not going to forget regardless of the fact that they you know got that gold statue or weren't even considered for it yeah and then the only thing I'll add in terms of you touch upon this is just the achievement in directing has been far and wide, like so different. Um, you know, you get Chazelle, Bigelow and, uh, um, those are, are those the only two Americans that have won recently. Yeah. Well, Bigelow yeah, and, is from and, 2009, but yeah. To the, yeah. To the, so, uh, but yeah, you have just this, diverse directing group but um as far as like the categories go i am not a huge fan of the whole entire most popular movie of the year um i'd rather nobody nobody was so it worked out (laughs) i honestly keep forgetting that that was a thing that almost happened (laughs) 
Like I to some degree, I feel as though they're they're like let's just keep this on the back burner until everyone forgets and we'll put it back. But no, I think I think McCory is right. That's like you know we should have like a, a best stunt. You know they have their own they have their own award show, but it would be great to be nominated from um, you know what is perceived to be the, the most prestigious award in, in movie uh, in movies. So with that, we move into the last question here, and it's pretty open ended. But um, we're about three months into a new year, into a new decade. Uh, kind of facing a lot of global uncertainty, but um, Terrence, what is the future of cinema? Where do you think this decade, um, what you've seen so far, and kind of just like what you hope for for this decade? How have you liked all five movies you've seen this year, Terrence? <laughs> I literally just went on Letterbox to add Emma, and I have seen nine films this year. Um, <laughs> I mean, just looking at it from like a right now perspective, in the time that we're in, I think we're going to see a further blurring of the line between like theatrical and home end. Um, I still think a lot of your big blockbusters will be in cinema, you know, like Disney is not putting Mulan on Disney plus. Right. Mm -hmm. But like Emma, all of these studios being like, we're in like, this really weird time we could put this thing online. I'm really, I'm going to be really fascinated, you know, five, 10 years down the line with if there were any learnings from that, that they've applied going forward. Um, if it were not for antitrust laws, like these movie studios, they would love to bypass the theaters. You know, they already take up all of the money. Like the reason why movie tickets um, in the snacks cost so much is because the theaters are trying to make their money back. Um, but you know, if there is no longer an established theatrical window and, you know, Dr. Strange two comes out and then three weeks later, it's on your Disney plus, um, going to be really fascinated as to how, you know, maybe that'll open up some more spots for these indie films because theaters will need reasons for people to go, um, and maybe they'll start being a little more adventurous in their programming. Great. Aaron, what about you? Same question. I echo, you know, what Terrence has said there. I guess one of the more interesting avenues I can look at as far as the future cinema is advertising. Cause I, I mean, I think uh, if you have, you know, so many chances for a movie to like be a hit and then if it is or isn't, it's still going to end up on VOD. Like what are we, where are we, I mean, looking at things right now and how certain movies are going straight to it now, there's an obvious reason for that. But in the future to come, like, is that going to be a model that's adopted more? If, you you know, if Onward and Bloodshot are, you know, not doing great at the box office, is it just easier to just put them out right away onto a streaming service? Is that is that the way to go in the future, regardless of the fact that theaters are closed? Is that, like, is that the means to do so? And by, by doing that, how do you advertise that? Like, do you spend a whole bunch of money on advertising for a movie that's only going to be in theaters for a week or two weeks? Or do you like bypass that process? What does that mean um, for things that aren't like the giant guaranteed blockbuster hits? Do you still do saturation marketing or what have you? Um, but then again, then you look at like, there's so many movies that come out onto Netflix and prime that people have no idea, let alone shows that have people have no idea about um, because they, they don't like, the effort's not there. It's not put into it in the same way it's put into some of the, you know, the bigger things they have up their sleeves. And so I, I wonder how do you, as much as, as much content as there is available and there will continue to be in the future of cinema and as many opportunities as there are presented to people that, you know, 
get a chance to make movies now or more of a chance to how do you how how do people find that thing how do people find that it's there to begin with i i mean i know there's movies i haven't heard of that are probably great or at least something worth watching that are available right now that i can easily access that i have no idea about because there's no effort put in to show me the fact that it exists beyond maybe a list that has a ton of names on it and i can't single that one out and be like what's that one it must be this so i that's that's the big curiosity I have about the future of cinema. Like, we're going to keep having the things that we have, and it's only going to become more prominent as far as the availability in streaming and the prevalence of big IPs in the big screen. So how do we find the other stuff? How do we keep finding it beyond just someone like me or you or Terrence who can, you know, we're into this thing, so we're going to find it regardless, and, you know, we can just, like, browse on YouTube and find trailers or various movie sites and hear about stuff. How does the average person find stuff that's not just the same thing that they already like. Mm-hmm. I think my largest takeaway from this for, for the, for the new decade is um, everything that we've learned from this past one, like the floodgates are open now, um, whether that's on new directing, new ways for you to transmit your stuff, whether that's YouTube, Vimeo, um, whatever streaming service, um, the streaming services are alive and well. Um, it's just this really open landscape. Like to some degree, it's, it's sort of, parallels a lot of video games right where you have open worlds you know whether it's red dead redemption or um breath of the wild it's like it's just open now like if you were curious about making a movie before uh you can totally make one now robert you guys again was championing this for a while but it just feels so much more accessible to do this you have so much advancement in technology just from rental services to your phone to a camera like a digital slr camera Whatever the case is, it's just there. Um, I am curious about what's going to be coming from, yes, the mainstream movie studios, but on a whole, I, it's been very fascinating just to see the the change become even more hyper-localized. I mean, that like a global level, which is like, yeah, now I can watch movies from Brazil in my home or uh, whatever the case is. But I, I do hear your point, Aaron, about just, well, how, how would I ever hear about these? Like, How can I hear about these if I'm, if I'm not in you know, a coastal city or like a major metropolitan city in the Midwest or something like that. Um, and I, I kind of just hope that uh, those people are on other forms of social media. I'm sure that they are and they'll hear it that way. But um, yeah, I, it's very, it's going to be very interesting to see what, what's going to happen because I think that we're kind of like beyond all those years that we thought about the quote unquote, the future was right back to the future part two, Blade Runner, whatever. Oh, we're, in, we're there, there's a lot. There's a lot of movies I track all over the time. I saw okay. I saw a fun graph that had movies from all kinds of futures, and we're, yeah. we're in the mid. We're in the middle of that chart that I saw. Okay. <laughs> there's plenty of there's I'm, plenty yeah, of terrible dystopias that we can still get to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, humans haven't even died off for cars to become sentient yet. So, <laughs> uh, the rise of Paul Newman again. Um, but I I definitely am am curious about what's going to happen because there's just the only way is forward and whether that's through the Academy Awards and or just some form of cinema, I'm excited. I'm, I'm curious, you know, last year I thought was a really strong year in movies and I'm going to be really excited to see what happens this year. Well, maybe at the end of this year into next year. Yeah. No, for reference, we're still in the 12 monkeys future. Oh no, Bruce Willis didn't complete his job yet. Well, he didn't complete it because yeah, we're still inside. (laughs) Um, So (laughs) we'll, we'll figure things out. Uh, but well, yeah, okay. Yeah, that yeah. was a great extended discussion about the the decade. No, yeah, I, I've been very happy to like be, be have you here, Terrence, with us to talk about you know our basically our recap of the decade. 
and, and what do we what we've seen come out of it and what have you um it's i know it's you know it's almost april um but i i, I thought it'd be fun to take you know take this giant look back at 10 years of film and i i, I think that you know, having the chance to, you know, take the time to like really go over things instead of just launching right into, you know, the end of the decade at the, you know, beginning of January, I, I think it, you know, allows for good reflection as well as good thoughts on what's to come next because of what a turning point we could be at right now as we record this episode. So it's, uh, yeah, no, it's good times yeah. <laughs> in talking about things, at least with all of that said, that's going to, I guess, wrap up this, uh, the second half of our uh, 400th episode spectacular. Um, yeah, Terrence, where can people find more of you online? Uh, you can find me at lenoirtour.net um, or on my social media handles at Terrence B. Johnson. Um, that's one R, no A, uh, in Terrence. Abe? Find more fun stuff over my Instagram, abe.mua, and twitter.com slash walrusmoose. I am... I, I'm generally writing new movie reviews at Wheeler Entertainment, but uh, I'm currently just still covering TV uh, there as well. I do have uh, Criterion reviews coming up on Why So Blue, and I'm on Twitter at Aaron's PS4. Uh, you can find all the other episodes of Out Now Theater Today on iTunes, Audio Boom, Spotify, and Stitcher. SoundCloud, Podomatic, or HHWLOD. Email us at outnowpockets at gmail.com. Uh, you can write on Facebook wall, facebook.com slash outnowpodcast, or twitter.com slash outnow underscore podcast. And our Instagram page, Instagram.com slash outnow underscore podcast as well. Um, in the coming weeks, we'll be figuring out like what we're going to do. That said, we do have a Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon commentary track that will be released next. Uh, so stay tuned for that because that's uh, a lot of fun. Um, and yeah, we have uh, there's some ideas we're cooking up to kind of figure out what to what to do to kind of pad out <laughs> this extended period of lack of new weekly releases. But um, we have uh, you know plenty of. Uh, <laughs> plenty of plenty of ways to take things and <laughs> keep things going completely um, yeah yeah uh thanks once again to mark johnson for joining us earlier to go over thank you mark johnson films of the decade let alone talk about his thoughts on the decade and thank you terrence for sticking with us to go over thanks, all terrence. of this stuff yeah. Yeah, no problem. and uh yeah that's gonna do it for this week's show and uh we'll be able to keep, you know we'll keep people updated as far as what's coming next to give you a sense especially if you do like commentaries or something give people a chance to like watch or get the movies or whatnot but yeah that's gonna do it for this one so until next time so long and goodbye
Drink up, let's boo-boo. Boo-boo, what is that? You remember Let's Boo-Boo? You know from Mr. Shepherd's classroom, it said on the wall, exit pursued by a bear, you know, from that Shakespeare play? A Winter's Tale. Yeah. What was it called? A Winter's Tale. That's it. And if we needed to make a quick getaway, we'd say, exit pursued by a bear. And then it was, exit pursued by Yogi Bear. And then it was just, let's Yogi and Boo-Boo. And then, let's Boo-Boo. So you're saying we should go? Yeah, it's shit here, isn't it? My clues!